Amen. In America, there is a lot of marking time with different holidays. You think about a few with me for a moment. You know, January opens up with New Year's Day. And to give some samplings throughout the year, you might think of Valentine's Day, which has been on uh, folks' minds this month. You can think about St. Patrick's Day. Uh, Easter is uh, widely celebrated in April. Mother's Day in May. Father's Day in June. Uh, you have the 4th of July, Labor Day, Halloween, Thanksgiving. Uh, you have a, a variety of days that uh, are very prominent on our calendars. And that uh, in many cases can determine people's um, financial planning and travel plans and all of that because of the importance uh, in the minds of of many Americans of certain holidays. Uh, The idea of marking time by prioritizing holidays is something that we can take as an analogy into the life of Israel. They too ordered their life and time in a sacred way. In Numbers 26, we saw sacred people being counted. And um, my friend Sam Amadi likes to think of it this way. If Numbers 26 is about sacred people, Numbers 27 was about a vision toward the coming promised land, and especially the faith of the daughters of Zelophehad, that there would be possession for them, sacred place. And then tonight, in Numbers 28 and 29, sacred time. Sacred people, sacred place, sacred time, that indeed the Lord has ordered the life of Israel, and in the place of the promised land, they will be a people whose life is governed by revealed days. Now, the, the particular festivals really come down to three months of Israel's year, those festivals that are annual. They are focused on the first month of Israel's calendar, the third and the seventh. So three particular months out of their year. The first, the third, and the seventh. But our passages tonight don't only give you the annual festivals. We've heard of some of these before. Passover or the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, Exodus and Leviticus have already addressed these. And so because of our expositional journey through the the Torah, uh, we have dealt with those in earlier messages. Numbers 28 and 29 is going to give you a lot of information because not only the annual practices are in view. The daily offerings of Israel, weekly offerings for Israel, monthly offerings for Israel, and then on top of that, the various feasts annually. So here's how I think this um, unfolds. There's a real logic to the breakdown. Morning and evening is is the most frequent thing that happens in the life of Israel, where a lamb is offered in the morning and a lamb is offered in the evening. And then on the Sabbath day, additional sacrifices occur on the seventh day of the week. And then when a new month begins, there are monthly sacrifices called new moon sacrifices because Israel's calendar was a lunar one. And then there are annual sacrifices. I've tried to block these off so that in this little blue uh, bracket, you can see that the annual sacrifices, there are actually seven of them. And part of what I'm going to borrow is from Leviticus in the Feast of First Fruits to make things as clear as possible so that Leviticus and Numbers can be seen together. So what we want to look at are three regular feasts, because they occur with some frequency, whether daily, weekly, or monthly, and then annual feasts. And just by looking at this, this is a lot, okay? This is a lot in chapters 28 and 29 of information and a lot of animal death. What you're going to notice is that in each of these offerings, animals are given, whether lambs, bulls, there are um, oil offerings and wine offerings. There is flour that is mixed in some of these offerings. 
They are even specified with the fraction of how much flour you give with a particular animal. This would require um, the priests to be very attentive to these offerings. They are regulated by the word of God and seven of them listed here. The only feasts of Israel that don't occur in this passage tonight are the ones that will be added later in Israel's history. And I have in mind much later. Like think 400s BC in the story of Esther. When Esther and Mordecai are used by the Lord to deliver the Jews from annihilation, from evil Haman, they establish a feast, the Feast of Purim. That's not going to be mentioned here. And that's because of where we are in biblical history. The Feast of Purim and the days of Esther are much later, like literally a thousand years later. So there's a lot of time that's going to unfold. And the other feast is the Feast of Hanukkah or the Feast of Dedication. Hanukkah takes place, uh, is established between the Old and New Testament eras. In the intertestamental years, those 400 years, there is a time where an evil Greek king subjected the people of God and defiled their temple, and Jewish soldiers and leaders overtook those uh, forces and rededicated their temple. And the Feast of Hanukkah marked that. So the Feast of uh, Purim and the Feast of Hanukkah are not listed here. That's because they occur so many centuries later. These seven feasts and these regular sacrifices, let's see what we can learn together. And I want you to think to yourself, how much of this seems familiar to me? Terms or regulations that maybe I've heard before and what might stand out as newer information to put together. Um, Part of the logic, too, of the placement of this is we saw in chapter 27 at the end, Joshua is going to be the new Moses. He's going to lead the people into the promised land. And this new generation... They have the same calendar responsibilities. Even though Leviticus gave us, in Leviticus 23, some regulations, that was primarily given to an audience of the Exodus generation. Well, a lot's happened since that point. They have left Sinai, 40 years of wilderness wandering, a lot of death, and in fact, the wilderness generation has died out. The new generation is going to have, if you will, a a, a going over again or repeating of these same sacrificial festivals. Let's begin with uh, the introduction in verses 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel and say to them, My offering, my food, and my food offerings, my pleasing aroma, you shall be careful to offer to me at its appointed time. What I want you to notice here is that the food offerings is something that is to symbolize fellowship and hospitality with Yahweh. They are going to bring these various offerings to the courtyard of the tabernacle where that beautiful bronze altar is going to be. And the priests are going to mediate these offerings and offer them on behalf of the people. But it is because God is welcoming sinners to approach him. They are reminded in these offerings that Yahweh has made us People in his image that we might fellowship with him. These sacrifices are about coming to God. And they're coming to God in these various regulated ways. Okay, daily, weekly, monthly, annually. The the calendar of Israel is shaped in a way to remind the Israelites you were made to come to God, to approach the Lord, to dwell with God, to commune with God. Let's notice together the morning and evening offerings. Verses 3 to 8. You shall say to them, This is the food offering that you shall offer to the Lord. Two male lambs, a year old, without blemish. Day by day, as a regular offering. 
The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Now, pausing there for a moment, this means the day of Israel is framed by sacrifice. There is a sacrifice in the morning, and there's a sacrifice in the evening, and then there's the daily life of Israel. But every day, the tabernacle had sacrificial activity that was required. Now, in addition to these animals, some flour is going to be offered with each lamb. Notice in verse 5, also a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering, mixed together with a quarter of a hen of beaten oil. It's a regular burnt offering which was ordained at Mount Sinai for a pleasing aroma of food offering to the Lord. Its drink offering shall be a quarter of a hen for each lamb. In the holy place you shall pour out a drink offering of strong drink to the Lord. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Like the grain offering of the morning and like its drink offering, you shall offer it as a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. What these daily offerings involved then are lambs, oil and flour, and wine. All part of the same moment of offering. So you have these priests that are receiving these animals by regulation, as well as the oil, the wine, and the flour. And all of this is to be put upon the altar in this holy sanctified place. And this is to start their day. The evening lamb and those respective components in the day. Therefore, morning and evening, Israel is given a calendar where their whole day as a people is framed by priests offering things at the beginning and end of the day. Notice as well, it told us that the lamb had to be without blemish. There's going to be some emphasis there. Because when we approach God, here's what the sacrificial system reminds us. You and I are not without blemish. We are morally blemished. We have sinned. We have transgressed the laws and ways of God. We have defied his wisdom and goodness. We have gone our own way and therefore we are blemished. If we are to bring an animal to God, the unblemished requirement is to symbolize what we ought to be but aren't. So I'm bringing an unblemished lamb that when the Lord receives the sacrifice, it is being offered in my place. Now the Sabbath day is the seventh day of the week. The Sabbath offerings in verses 9 and 10 are very short. On the Sabbath day, two male lambs, a year old without blemish, and two tenths of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering, mixed with oil and its drink offering. We're going to see the repetition of language where an animal is offered, flour and oil are brought, and wine is mixed. But notice verse 10. This is the burnt offering of every Sabbath besides... The regular burnt offering and its drink offering. What the end of verse 10 is telling us is that these morning and evening offerings aren't replaced on the seventh day by these requirements. These requirements are in addition to what would already be a daily offering. We, We could look at this and say this is cumulative. This is cumulative. That is the Sabbath. And the Sabbath reminds us of Genesis 2. Where God is enthroned over creation. He has ceased making creatures. He has made his image bearers on the sixth day. And God is enthroned in the world he has made. He rests from that creative activity, if you will. And on the Sabbath day, the Israelites were to recognize the holiness of what God had set apart. Of the work that God had finished and that they were to rest in trusting his own work and sustenance. 
And then in verses 11 to 15, here are some monthly offerings. At the beginning of your months. This is a lunar calendar. And so at the appropriate time, when the moon is doing what it should do, you shall offer a burnt offering to the Lord. Now we're not just dealing with a few lambs. Notice the extended animal requirements. Two bulls from the herd. That already sounds expensive. Two bulls from the herd. Seven male lambs a year old without blemish. And also, verse 12, three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour. So you got the flour for the grain offering. Mixed with oil, there's that, with each bull. Two-tenths of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with oil for the one ram. And a tenth of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering for every lamb. I hope I read all the animals. Two bulls, one ram, seven male lambs. That's a lot of animals. And each of those have various flour and oil components to them. All of this in verse 13 for a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. In verse 14, the drink offering shall be half a hen of wine for a bull, a third of a hen for a ram, a quarter of a hen for a lamb. There is a um, a decrease in the fractions there. Did you notice one half is followed by one third, followed by one fourth? And so the fractions get smaller and smaller. And that's likely because the animal is less and less economically expensive. The greatest would be the bull. This is the burnt offering of each month throughout the months of the year. Also, one male goat for a sin offering to the Lord. It shall be offered besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. Now, the the reason we want to remind ourselves of the cumulative nature is, listen, at the beginning of the lunar month, you're already going to have morning and evening offerings. That's required. That doesn't stop. The morning and evening offerings are given and the monthly offerings. So every month, the Israelites are going to have these variety of animals. This is an extraordinary number of animals that would be sacrificed every single month. And now why new moon? You just ponder that for a moment. You know, they're daily set apart to the Lord. The Sabbath reminds us of Genesis 2 when God is rested from creation and sustains his people. But the monthly, this has something about newness to it. It's a new month. And so the cycle of the moon has, if you will, I think, a foreshadowing and a longing for God to bring what is new, to inaugurate something. And the the beginning of the new month leads us toward hoping for the beginning of what God has promised in the Old Testament, that Christ will inaugurate. There's something about beginning again. And every month, they're going to give these sacrifices to mark the importance of that occasion. Now, we are told in Colossians chapter 2 that the new moon festivals, in Colossians 2, 16 and 17, that's these, the new moon festivals were the shadows and the substance belongs to Christ. In Colossians 2, there's this, this is very small phrase, right? The new moon that's just tucked right there. But what that reminds us in Colossians 2 is this monthly practice for the whole nation that governed their calendar. It was a big deal. They did it every month for every year. And then in Christ, in Christ it's brought to completion. That's incredible. Think with me about the Passover offerings. Okay, so we're in familiar territory here as well. The 14th day of the month. The Passover reminds us of the exodus out of Egypt. Here was Israel in the book of Exodus, in bondage to Pharaoh and his wicked minions and uh, all of those uh, taskmasters. And on the 14th day of the month, they were marking the deliverance 
of the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. God even told them in Exodus 12, you're going to remember what happens here. Every year, this will be the beginning of months for you. In the month of Nisan, it turns out, in the first month of the year, they would have the first of the annual festivals. And how appropriate that to start their calendar would be the month of Nisan reminding them that they are a delivered people. Their identity as a redeemed people is at the forefront of their calendar year in terms of annual activity. The first of these seven annual practices. Now, verse 16 is followed by what happens on the 15th day and following. We can see that the feast of Passover, when the lambs are killed and the family and the households eat the lamb and the bitter herbs and and the whole Passover meal, which was continually reenacted year after year. Even Jesus and his disciples are preparing for Passover during his Passion Week, right? Jesus dies on Passover. We have a lot of important Christological connections with Passover. John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Corinthians 5-7, Paul says, He's our Passover sacrifice. It is no coincidence that when Jesus dies, He dies on the day the lambs would be slain for the family households to enjoy. Jesus is bringing new exodus from the deeper exile and captivity that we have as sinners Now the Passover, that day is followed by a seven-day period called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It follows right on the heels of Passover. There's not like several days in between. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is just not a day, it's a week. And so it follows on Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Here's what we're told in verse 9. I didn't mean verse 9, I meant verse 17. In uh, chapter 28, 17, on the 15th day of this month is a feast. Seven days shall unleavened bread be eaten. Normally, you would let the leaven do its work and the bread would rise. It would take some time. Why unleavened bread? Unleavened bread is very particularly connected to their exodus, isn't it? When they were to leave Egypt under the hand of Moses and ultimately the hand of God, they were to eat with haste, with their shoes on, with their staff in hand, with their belt fastened, with unleavened bread because they needed to eat quickly and not wait on things to rise. The uniqueness of that Exodus moment on that night when the tenth plague would fall, this unleavened bread as part of the feast connects us to Passover. So every day, seven days, they shall eat unleavened bread. In verse 18, on the first day of that feast, there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no ordinary work. It's, if you will, uh, a Sabbath before the Sabbath. Think of it that way. In other words, we're setting the first day of this feast apart. But there are some sacrifices in verse 19. Offer a food offering, a burnt offering to the Lord. Two bulls from the herd. One ram. Seven male lambs a year old. And no surprise here in verse 19. See that they are without blemish. And also, what do we have here? Grain offering, a fine flour. That's what we expect. And then we see oil. Three-tenths of an ephah you shall offer for... I skipped a line here. In verse uh, 20, grain offering, uh, fine flour mixed with oil. Three-tenths of an ephah you shall offer for a bull. Two-tenths for a ram. And a tenth you shall offer for each of the seven lambs. 
Also one male goat in verse 22 for a sin offering to make atonement for you. You shall offer these besides the burnt offering of the morning, which is for the regular burnt offering. In the same way, you shall offer daily for seven days the food of a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. In other words, these sacrifices were offered every day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It shall be offered in besides the regular burnt offering and drink offering in verse 24. And then on the seventh day, the last day of the feast, is also a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. What we notice about the Feast of Unleavened Bread is it comes right on the heels of Passover, but the Feast of the Unleavened Bread opens and ends with a kind of Sabbath before the Sabbath, where you're not doing customary work, and there's a lot of animal sacrifices, an extraordinary amount. And then we see what helps us from Leviticus. During the Feast of Unleavened Bread, there is something called the Feast of First Fruits, which is connected to harvest time. It's connected to what God is granting in growth. And the Feast of Weeks connects to this as well. But the Feast of First Fruits is not as clear in numbers as it is in Leviticus. So I'm going to borrow from Leviticus 23 to make a few points. The Feast of First Fruits is in Leviticus 23, when the first sheaf was available in the harvest. And they would take that, and they would take it to the priest, and the priest would wave it to demonstrate that God has granted growth. And this first fruits gives us hope of what's to come. We can trust him for the remainder of the crop. And it's a wonderful thing. The first barley sheaf. Here's what we recognize that was unique when Jesus died. When Jesus dies on Passover, he rises on the first day of the week, which in the year that he died whether it was A.D. 30 or 33, the Feast of First Fruits was the first day of the week that year. Meaning that Jesus dies as the Passover lamb and rises on the day of first fruits, which is why Paul calls him in 1 Corinthians 15, the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead. He is the first fruits of those who will be raised at his coming. Christ himself has been raised as an installment in confidence of the harvest. But counting from this time, 50 days, we come to the Feast of Weeks. In chapter 28-26, the Feast of Weeks is otherwise known as Pentecost. Because you're counting 50. You're counting seven weeks on the first day of first fruits, in verse 26, when you offer a grain offering of new grain to the Lord at your feast of weeks, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall offer a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, two bulls from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs a year old, also their grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil, three tenths of an ephah for each bull, two tenths for one ram, a tenth for each of the seven lambs, with one male goat to make atonement for you. Besides the regular burnt offering and its grain offering, you shall offer them with their drink offering. See that they are without blemish. What verses 26 to 31 are telling us that overlaps with earlier instructions is you're getting lambs, bulls, a goat, rams, grain offering with flour mixed with oil, wine offering. It's the same substances. When we read these details, it is easy. Listen, it's easy to, to glaze over it even as you're reading it from, from right here behind the pulpit. But you look at some of this, the details and the animals are the same. 
Sometimes the actual count of how many is identical. The fractions of oil, flour, and wine are also given. The same kinds of measurements, they appear over and over again. The repetition is the kind of thing that is part of the procedures of Israel's life. Now, we might think, well, I wouldn't have wanted as long as Numbers 28 and 29 is to lay all of this out. But in the, in the time of Israel, they did not mind lengthy repetition of instructions and lambs and numbers. See that they are without blemish in verse 31. Now, what is the Feast of Weeks uh, celebrating? Well, it marks the end of the season that the Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits were associated with. And it comes seven weeks after this uh, sheaf is waved. It is a, a highlight, uh, the anticipation of uh, the end of the season. The 50 days, Pentecost, ought to remind us of some New Testament texts, right? Because at Pentecost, the Spirit is poured out in Acts chapter 2, seven weeks after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And so every time we look at American calendars and we see how Easter is coordinated and we see Easter on a particular Sunday, seven weeks after Easter is Pentecost. It's the uh, marking of those things according to um, both Old and New Testament promises and fulfillments. Now, we've looked at the first month of the year. Um, The third month of the year is the Feast of Weeks. Let's go to the seventh month. The last three feasts all occur in the seventh month. And I want to emphasize to you here that the number seven is chosen very specifically. These particular feasts are the climactic feasts of Israel's calendar year as revealed in the Torah. And they don't occur just within any month. It's the seventh month. And the seventh month of the year, the month of Tishri, is in the fall. If I'm noticing seasons here, here's the way Israel's calendar works. They have one, two, three, four feasts in the spring, and they have three feasts in the fall. But all of their fall feasts occur in one month, all in month seven. And a number of numbers here in the book of Numbers um, is going to play on the number seven that I think really presses the symbolism of the book. Now, uh, of the number. Then in chapter 29, we move from the spring feast to the fall feast. And we come to the Feast of Trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets in verses 1 to 6. On the first day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. Shall not do any ordinary work. It's a day for you to blow the trumpets. And you shall offer a burnt offering for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now let's think about the animals they're going to choose. A bull, a ram, seven male lambs. We've seen these animals before. Okay, no surprise here. In the end of verse 2, the lambs must be without blemish. Well, that's exactly what we would expect. And then in verse 3, a grain offering, a fine flour. Ah, I bet it's mixed with oil. Yep. Three-tenths of an ephah for a bull, two-tenths for a ram, and one-tenth for each of the seven lambs. And then verse 5, one male goat for a sin offering. Seen that before. It's in earlier offerings. And it's to make atonement for you. In verse 6, besides the burnt offering of the new moon and its grain offering and the regular burnt offering and grain offering and their drink offering, according to the rule for them, for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Now, what did we just read at the end of that? Well, think about it this way. If the Feast of Trumpets is blown on the first day of the month, you know what also is happening on the first of the month? Monthly sacrifices. You know what also is happening on the day? (laughs) Daily sacrifices. So in the Feast of Trumpets, hold on. 
You've got these sacrifices, these sacrifices, these sacrifices all being offered. There's a lot happening at the Feast of Trumpets. But it is to bring to attention at this holy convocation the importance of the seventh month. And so in the Feast of Trumpets, you know it's not saying the Feast of Trumpets is so that we might remember what God has done on this particular earlier occasion. It's not tied, actually, to an earlier redemptive event. The Feast of Trumpets is forward-looking. The Feast of Trumpets is looking to what's coming next because on the tenth day of the month is the Day of Atonement. Let's look together at this particular feast. In verses 7 through 11... We are told on the 10th day of this seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation and afflict yourselves. Afflict yourselves? What does this verb refer to? Well, to afflict oneself in Old Testament language was not about self-flagellation. This instead was about um, abstaining through some sort of fasting where you could normally enjoy a particular thing or practice, but for this time, you're going to push yourself through an occasion, a season of abstaining, or in in other sense, afflicting yourself by denying some sort of uh, enjoyment or pleasure. This holy convocation, this tenth day, is likely meant to follow the Feast of of Trumpets, so that at the Feast of Trumpets, they are mentally and bodily preparing for The Day of Atonement. Now, the Day of Atonement regulations are not given here in great detail. You have to go to Leviticus 16. We won't do that tonight, but I preached a whole sermon on Leviticus 16 when we were in that uh, book many seasons ago, it seems now. But in Leviticus 16, we find that this is the most important day of Israel's year. So in the most important day of Israel's year, in what month is it? It's It's in month seven. In month seven, you find the Day of Atonement, where on this particular day, the high priest would remove some of his vestments and go into the temple, into the tabernacle at the time, but later the temple, where he would go behind the veil of the most holy place. And with blood of one of the goats, he would sprinkle it upon the Ark of the Covenant. And he would back out of the holy place and ultimately into the courtyard where he had been sprinkling all of the holy vessels as he moved back. And then the other goat, a live goat, at the entrance, he would place both hands on the head of the goat. And God would count the sins of the people upon the head to be transferred out into the wilderness this day of atonement. This day of atonement was the most important of their days. We're told here in verse 8. You shall offer, this is chapter 29, 8, you shall offer a burnt offering to the Lord, a pleasing aroma. One bull from the herd, a ram, seven male lambs a year old, see that they're without blemish. And in verse 9, grain offering shall be a fine flour mixed with oil, three tenths of an ephah for the bull, two tenths for the ram, a tenth for each of the seven lambs, and one male goat for a sin offering, besides the sin offering of atonement. I think that that's referring there to the two goats The one goat for a sin offering besides the sin offering of atonement that Leviticus 16 talks about. We just get a line here. This animal and this animal. But Leviticus 16 gives you more information. And the regular burnt offering and grain offering and drink offerings besides. Again, cumulative, right? So the tenth day of the seventh month, the day of atonement, already has morning and evening activities to attend to. Those are not excluded. The most important day. This is a big deal in the New Testament. The New Testament is saying to us, atonement is finished. This is an annual, annual sacrifice. 
Jesus dies on the cross, and we just, the gravity of this has to hit us with the full biblical force it needs to. In John 19 30, he says, It is finished. And no priest with any goats could ever say that. It was more like, we'll see you next year. Same time, same place, you know, same tabernacle, same 10th day of the month. The atonement was never finished, which is what makes the fact that this annual remembrance comes to an end in the ministry and death of Christ. It is staggering to consider how many centuries, how many goats, how many lambs, how many oil and grain, wine offerings. And Jesus says, it is finished. It it, it is absolutely staggering to the mind when we see how complex and drawn out their calendar year is. And then glorious crescendo of fulfillment. What good news is this? And then, lastly, the Feast of Booths offerings. The Feast of Booths offerings is the last feast talked about here in Numbers 29. And it begins in verse 12. In in chapter 29, 12, what we see here is a series of days. What we're told in chapter 29, 12, on the 15th day of the seventh month, so still month seven, still fall feast, On the fifteenth day, you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall keep a feast to the Lord for seven days. So there's going to be a week of feasting. You shall offer a burnt offering, a food offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Thirteen bulls. I'm just going to have to hold on as I say that. Oh my goodness. This, This is the most that has been offered of any animal sacrifice to this point. And thirteen bulls is just for day one. Thirteen bulls, and then it says in verse 13, two rams, fourteen male lambs a year old, they shall be without blemish. Grain offering of flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for each of the thirteen bulls, two-tenths for two rams, a tenth for each of the fourteen lambs, one male goat for a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offering, it's grain offering, it's drink offering. We're looking still at oil and flour. We're looking at wine. We're looking at various animals. But 13 bulls? Here is a progression I want you to know. Or should I say a digression? In verse 17, what about day 2? We're ready to see 13 more bulls, but we don't. We see 12. 13 to 12. But then we still see two rams, 14 male lambs without blemish, grain offering, drink offerings for rams and lambs in the prescribed quantities. In verse 19, we still see a one male goat for a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offerings and grain offerings and drink offerings. Well, on day three, we move not from 13 to 12, but from then 12 to 11. So we're, we're moving down, aren't we? In verse 20 on the third day, 11 bulls, but still two rams and 14 male lambs, grain offering and drink offerings for the bulls and rams and lambs in the prescribed quantities. Even still in verse 22, a male goat for a sin offering. Besides the very regular burnt offering and grain offering and drink offering. Talking about those morning, evening sacrifices at the beginning of Numbers 28. Well, now we get a rhythm going. We know what to expect now. In verse 23, on the fourth day, ten bulls. We know how to subtract one. (laughs) So we're just moving down, right? Ten bulls, but then also two rams, 14 male lambs without blemish, grain offering, drink offerings for the bulls and rams, for the lambs in the prescribed quantities. Then there's that male goat, verse 25. One male goat for a sin offering. 
No one ever adds to that or takes away from that. It's that one male goat. Besides the regular burnt offering, grain offering, and drink offerings. On the fifth day, we know what's coming. Nine. Nine bulls, two rams, 14 male lambs, grain offering, drink offerings in verse 27, all in the prescribed quantities. In verse 28, we know that male goat's, that he's in there. <laughs> he's always there. Besides the regular burnt offering and grain offering and drink offering. On the sixth day, so we're getting close because this was a seven-day feast, right? So let's see if everything is as we would expect. On the sixth day, eight bulls. And then the two rams, the 14 lambs without blemish, the grain offering, drink offerings for the bulls, rams, and lambs in prescribed quantities. Verse 31, male goat, check that box, he's still there. Besides the regular burnt offering, grain offering, and drink offerings, seventh day, seven bulls, seven bulls, two rams, 14 male lambs, a year old without blemish, grain offering, drink offerings for the bulls, rams, and lambs in prescribed quantities. Male goat, verse 34, sin offering. Regular burnt offerings, those are still happening. Grain offering, drink offerings for that daily activity. But on the eighth day, eighth day, hold on a second. So we had earlier Feast of Booths or this Feast of Tabernacles where the Israelites were told they're going to have a seven-day feast. Now the seventh-day feast is followed by a special eighth day. This eighth day is going to look a little different. In verse 35... On the eighth day, you shall have a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. You see, all the feasting days weren't exactly given that description. This is different. This eighth day is the capstone. It's the capstone to this feast. Friends, it's the capstone to all of their calendar festivals. Like this eighth day is a really big deal because it doesn't start back over annually until Passover. And so then we're told... In verse 36, you shall offer a burnt offering, food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. One bull. Boy, we jumped a lot from seven to one. We were expecting maybe six, but that's the point. They're breaking the pattern here. This is not a day like any of the other feasting days. So it doesn't just continue with a subtracting one digression. One bull, one ram. We were expecting two. Seven male lambs. We were expecting 14. Still without blemish. The grain offering, the drink offerings for the bull, the ram, the lambs in prescribed quantities. One male goat, he's so dependable. That one male goat from the sin offering, he's just so consistent all the way through. Besides the regular burnt offering and grain offering and drink offerings. Now at the end of the Feast of Booths, it's helpful for us to remember, what was this Feast of Booths doing? Now the booth or tabernacle, Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles, was to mark the end of their season, their harvest season, where God had been sustaining and providing for them. And this feast was established when they were at Sinai. Because they were an Exodus people who would leave Sinai, and you know what the Lord would do in the wilderness? He would provide for them. He would give them bread, and they would be camping in their booths. Now, we would call them tents. Uh, they, would, they would be camping in their tents or their booths, and they would set it up. And they, would be, they were like a tabernacling people around the tabernacle. So a Feast of Tabernacles or a Feast of Booths was a way of reminding them of God's sustaining grace and power and provision during their Exodus, post-Exodus years. The wilderness, he oversaw their lives. He was going to bring them into the time of inheritance, into the promised land. They could trust and depend on the Lord. The Feast of Tabernacles or Booths reminded them that they dwelled in tents and they camped around God who in the center was in a tabernacle, a tent, a booth of all things. Very impressive booth, very lavish, very holy. But nonetheless, 
a booth or a tabernacle in the midst. And then in verse 39, we're told, These you shall offer to the Lord at your appointed feasts. He's looking back at everything you've just looked through. We just, I don't know if you realize this, we just looked through an awful lot. <laughs> a lot of, a lot of uh, measurements of hens and ephahs and wines and all sorts of different regulations and specifics. Here in verse 39, all these you shall offer to the Lord at your appointed feast. Now who appoints them? It's not like they formed a Sinai committee and was like, when do you guys think we should do the Feast of Booths? The Lord has been so specific that certain things happen at certain times. There are sacred people going into a sacred space and they will have a sacred time that will govern all of their calendar year. He says these will be in addition in verse 39 to any vow offerings or free will offerings for your burnt offerings, your grain offerings, your drink offerings, your peace offerings. You see, there were voluntary offerings they could bring. What I want you to know is Nothing here is voluntary. There were voluntary provisions. You as a family could bring a free will offering or make a vow to the Lord and bring an animal. There were regulations for all of that. These are required. Daily offerings, weekly offerings, monthly offerings, annual feasts, seven in number, all climaxing in the seventh month where the Feast of Trumpets announced the good things that were coming. God's atoning work and His sustaining grace. And they did this because at the beginning of their year, they were reminding themselves, we're a delivered people. And God has kept His word, He's kept His covenant, He's kept His promises. Now how should we think of Christ in all of these days of remembrance? It's a lot. But consider that in the daily and e- the morning and evening offerings, we don't offer these as believers. We recognize that the burnt offering given at the altar to symbolize setting apart to God that Christ himself has been consumed in our place. He is the aroma of the sacrifice that Ephesians 5 verse 2 talks about. He gave his life as a sacrifice, an aroma pleasing to God. Christ himself is our daily intercessor, our perfect mediator and priest. We are not without moment by moment, day by day, intercessory power and work by the work of Jesus himself. He fulfills the daily sacrifice. He himself is also our rest. Think of what the Sabbath pointed to. Christ says, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. It's natural to associate rest because of the Old Testament background, with the Sabbath. And Christ is directing people to come to Him to find rest. And then on the first day of the week, He inaugurates the Lord's Day by His resurrection. He inaugurates the kingdom rest and kingdom peace, the shalom and wellness of soul and life that we long for. And we gather on the Lord's Day in remembrance of what Christ has done in bringing the Sabbath to its appointed conclusion in Him to be inaugurated as the Lord's Day on the first day of the week. B.B. Warfield said, Christ took the seventh day into the grave with Him so that He rises from the dead with the Lord's Day at the beginning of the week. While the Sabbath in Genesis 1 and 2 marks God's work of creation that has come before, the Lord's Day marks the work of new creation on the beginning of the week when Christ rises in victory from the dead. Think about the monthly offerings. If these monthly offerings foreshadow a sense of newness, looking to begin again, where are these beginnings going to find their fulfillment? Well, Colossians 2 says they're just shadows and Christ is the substance. 
That Christ himself is the beginning of life and glory for new creation. That with his resurrection from the dead and the work by the spirit in the hearts of the saints, we are already experiencing and living in the days where these monthly offerings have met their fulfillment in the Son of God. Passover, well this is an easy one. Well, Christ is our Passover lamb. He dies on Passover. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 calls him the unblemished lamb. It couldn't get any clearer. Christ is the bread of life, the unleavened bread for us. Christ is without sin. He lacks leaven. And leaven became a symbol in the Old and New Testament for something unwanted, undesired. It's something that could hinder proper uh, pursuit of the Lord in obedience, like in the Exodus. And it took on moral qualifications that you certainly see clear in the days of the Pharisees, where Jesus said that the Pharisees' teaching is like leaven, and you need to beware it. But Christ himself is true manna from heaven. He is bread of life and sustains and guides his new Exodus people. Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. He has been raised on the first day of the week. The installment to guarantee the full receiving of the raised at his return. 1 Corinthians 15.22 when Paul calls him the first fruits of those who will be made alive. Paul is intentionally recalling what we read in Numbers and in Leviticus. The Feast of Weeks. Well Christ has ascended in the book of Acts and poured out his Holy Spirit on the Feast of Weeks. Seven weeks after his resurrection, the Spirit comes down in Acts chapter 2 on the Feast of Pentecost. The Feast of Trumpets looks forward to what would be done. The Feast of Trumpets is ready for God to once again demonstrate work of bringing people near through animal sacrifice and sustaining them with tabernacling presence. The Feast of Trumpets anticipates, in other words, the presence and grace of God with the people of God. But Christ has fulfilled the Feast of Trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets has met its fulfillment in that Christ is God's demonstration of being with us and for us. He is, after all, Emmanuel. And this certainly paves the way toward his work of atonement. The Day of Atonement is completed by Christ. He has accomplished atonement by saying it is finished. The letter of Hebrews makes much of this. In Hebrews, all over the place, it wants you to know about the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus. And the reason that's such a big deal to the Hebrews writer is because this was the calendar of Israel. And so for Jesus to bring something to completion was something that this calendar didn't necessarily have as part of its inner work. But rather in the plane of God, it would only be for the shadowy time of the Old Testament era. The Day of Atonement, we're reminded in Hebrews 10.4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So you know, friends, when we read Numbers 28 and 29, you know what the rams and the lambs and the bulls and the flour and the wine and the oil are not doing? Not actually taking away anybody's sins. You need a cross for that. You need a cross for that. And you need an unblemished lamb who would be the one to bear all the sins of the people. In the Feast of Booths, we come finally to this feast, the Feast of Tabernacles and John recalls the tabernacling work and presence of God. In his gospel, he says in John 1.14, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. We know that Christ is the tabernacling work and presence of God himself. He is the very son, the everlasting one, the eternal one, for whom and by whom all things are made. He has fulfilled the feast of booze because he has come to tabernacle among us and draw us near. 
And not because we're approaching a courtyard. And not because we're having to see priests disappear into the holy place. And on once a year, one priest, the high priest, would go behind the veil. Hebrews tells us that Christ himself has gone behind the veil. And that he has completed all of this earlier work of shadows and types and patterns. That Christ has fulfilled for us the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. So what do we do now about sacrifices? Well, none of these. We gather on the Lord's Day. And we take the Lord's Supper. And we remember that Jesus says, this is my body given for you. This is my blood given for you. The blood of the new covenant which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. They did this in remembrance and anticipation. And Paul says, here's what remembrance looks like for you, new covenant community. You think of the cross now. That is brought to a climactic and crescendo fulfillment. What these earlier shadows were pointing toward. And the Christ himself, Paul says, in the supper, we remember that he will come again. We eat and drink this until he comes. So even our remembrance involves looking backward and anticipating what is to come. Paul says, think of it this way in Romans 12. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So you know what we do in terms of responding to God rightly? We respond to what God has done in Christ by coming to Christ with all that we are. We offer ourselves to the Lord. Not because we're trying to make atonement, but because Christ already has. Praise God for His atoning work. Let's pray.